Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Uh, we want you to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning with us. Need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 3 with us. And uh, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. And we are going to prayerfully and Lord willing wrap up chapter 3 this morning. Uh, One other thing I forgot to mention in our announcements is uh, uh, Place of Hope here is um, a ministry that we we have a great love for. And they do a a Big Tent Revival once a year, and it's two weeks long. It just started, and uh, I think today, uh, tonight, I believe, 6 o'clock for two weeks straight. There'll be different pastors from different uh, churches here in the community that will be teaching and and encouraging the staff and and those uh, the the member the um, those who are in place of hope, and so you're welcome to go there any night, 6 p.m. and hang out with them under the tent. It is such a blessing, I'll tell you. But actually, next Sunday I get to teach there. Our worship team will be doing worship, and so if you're around and you would like to support that, that would be awesome. Uh, again, Place of Hope is one of our local ministries that we support, and it would be great for our church to be able to see what they're doing over there and. To, to meet the people that are the clients of Place of Hope. Uh, it, it is, I'll tell you what, it's life transforming to go there and to, to see the humility and to see the brokenness and to see what God's doing in the lives of the people and the staff, man, to see them serve the way they serve. So uh, Place of Hope, September 22nd, 6 p.m., I'll be teaching there, but you can go anytime in the next couple weeks and check it out. Colossians chapter 3, stand with me real quick. We're going to read beginning in verse 18. I know these are some of your favorite passages, and so we are going to have an awesome time. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and what a set of passages we have before us. So applicable, such practical wisdom, Lord such ordination and design of authority and submission and obedience. Lord, and yet there's so much contention in the human heart as it relates to these things. And so we come now in the mighty name of Jesus and ask you to cut open our hearts. If there be any hardness there, Lord, that we would hear your voice this morning in the areas we need to hear. 
that we would surrender our hearts to you, Lord, and say, not my will, but your will be done. And so we ask you to come and teach us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit this morning, what we are called to do as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as employers and employees. All the primary relationships in our lives. Will you come now and help us understand how to conduct ourselves in a way that would glorify you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were with us last time, we were a couple weeks ago, we talked about what it looks like to, to live the resurrected life. And there were really kind of two things that Paul talked about in verses 1 through 17 of chapter 3. The first being the mindset of the believer. Verses 1 through 4, Paul says, listen, you have to have a heavenly mindset if you're ever going to live like a citizen of heaven on earth. So he says, you got to transform your mind. And we know the word tells us that, that, we, uh, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. As we get into God's word, it transforms the way that we think. We have a, it, it flips the way that we see the world, and then our conduct comes afterward. So we have to have the right mindset. And then he moves on, and he talks about not only do we have the proper mindset, but we also have to have the proper attire. We're not dressed for the kingdom of heaven if we're walking in the old life. So he says, you got to put off the old clothes, and you got to put on the new clothes. Now, positionally, we, we talk about this. We are already clothed in Christ. We have the robe of righteousness and, and all of those things, but there is a literal, uh, you know, practical side of of walking in the Spirit on a daily basis as a Christian that we, we are active in, that we choose to participate in. Like we have the decision to either follow the flesh or follow the Spirit. And so Paul says, listen, if you have the proper mindset, you will then have the proper, uh, you know, attire on. You will understand what God's calling you to do and you will walk in the Spirit. So it starts with the mind, but then you have to have the proper attire, being clothed in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. That's what it looks like to live the resurrected life. Now, as he moves on in, through the rest of this chapter, he's still continuing the idea of what it looks like to be resurrected, to live resurrectedly. And what we're going to primarily talk about is Christian conduct, what God expects of each one of us in our home and in the workplace. So not only does this translate from you know, the, the in-passing of people in our lives that we meet and greet and we say, hello, God loves you, God bless you. But it also translates into our conduct as it relates to the most intimate relationship that we will have. That being those in our home and those in our workplace. Do you realize that those are the people that you spend the most time with? Is your coworkers and your family. You're not going to spend any, any more time with anybody else in the world then you will spend with your coworkers and with the, the people that live in your home. And God, because we believe that he's sovereign and that he has a, a plan for every one of us, that he has planted us in a home. He has planted us in a workplace to be a vessel of glory for him, to be a light shining, perhaps even in a dark place. And so Paul wants us to, to, to continue to look at what, what the gospel demands 
as it relates to those who, who, are, who have died to self and are resurrected in Christ. Our conduct matters. How we treat our family members matters. How we interact with our employer and our employees matters. You represent Jesus. And if people know that and you're not doing it right, man, what a tragedy. I love what Francis Chan said about the, 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 the call for Christians and their conduct in life. In his book, Crazy Love, he said, we need to stop giving people excuses not to believe in God. You've probably heard the expression, I believe in God, just not organized religion. How many of us not heard that? I don't think people would say that if the church truly lived like we are called to live. True or false? True. And, and so here's the thing is that there is hypocrisy probably in all of our lives in different ways, but we don't settle for that. We don't say, hey, I'm not perfect, so therefore just accept me. No, no, there's, there is spiritual sweat that is required for the believer. Like you bear the name above all names. Christian, Christ's name, you are a follower of Jesus. And therefore, there is a different road for you. There's a different, there's a different a set of code for you as it relates to the way that you live. And, and here's the thing. God doesn't call you to do something that he hasn't empowered you to do. Wouldn't it be something if God just said, hey, here's the code, now good luck, right? We wouldn't be able to do it, but here's what he says. Here's the code, and here's the power. Here's how you're supposed to live, and here's the ability to do it, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, you, you, you try it on your own and see how that works out for you. Thank God he doesn't do that. He expects us to constantly being transformed and to constantly be in this mode of becoming more like Jesus. Some of us have stopped. Some of us have, are not progressing. We've just, hey, this is where I am, and, you know, I'm just kind of settled into this place, and when I get to heaven, everything will be cool. Hey, listen, you're, you're complacent. The Lord is calling you out of complacency. He's calling you into, uh, into a, a, a mode of conduct that can only be accomplished through his spirit. If you're complacent this morning, listen up. Listen to what the Lord wants to say to you. He, he's calling you to, to higher places. And, and with that comes greater responsibilities. The Lord wants to use you, man. When, when he formed you in his mind before you were ever born, he created you to accomplish some great things. And, you know, maybe you've accomplished some of them. Here's what I know is that if you're still breathing, he still has something for you to do. The question is, are you doing it? If, if you don't allow the Spirit the proper place in your life, you will never be on the path that God wants you to be on. You'll never experience the life that, that, that Christ died to give you. It's possible. It's, it's, it's God's promise to you that if you will trust him and you will walk in his spirit, that you will walk in victory. 
Now, here, here's the thing is that our salvation, you know, I'm talking to Christians here. I'm talking to people who've come to Christ. Our salvation is settled as a result of Christ and Christ alone. Nothing we can do to accomplish that. But in our sanctification, it requires our work. It requires our denying of self. It requires us on a daily basis to die to self. So there is work to be done in our lives as it relates to sanctification, not salvation. And he's saying, put the work in, Christian. Put it in. Don't get sidetracked with the things of this world. Pursuing things that are temporary that will never translate into eternity. Listen, you ought to be investing in things that will build you up into the image of Christ so that you can be a greater light bearer to those who are living in darkness. Ask yourself this morning, am I living up to the calling that he's given me? Am I being who I am called to be? Am I being transformed? Fake Christianity tells you that you don't have to change. True Christianity says, or fake Christianity tells you, just say a prayer and you're good. You're going to heaven. You're okay. But true Christianity says, yes, say a prayer, trust in Christ, but then be transformed into the image of Christ. There is a transforming work of the Holy Spirit when somebody comes to Christ. That's why James said, in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he said, faith without works is dead. He said, man, show me your faith. Because people in his culture were saying, no, no, I got faith. I believe. And he goes on to say, even in verse 19 and 20, even the demons believe and, and shudder. It's not about whether you believe or not. It's whether or not you've truly received Christ and your life is being transformed. Show me your faith and I'll show you my works, is what he said. What he's saying is, faith without works isn't real Christianity. Faith with works is real Christianity. A.T. Robertson said it like this. He said, real Christianity is both a doctrine and a life. Mere belief is dead without life as proof. Real spiritual life is impossible without vital conduct with God and Christ, and our dealings with others become the final proof of our real connection with Christ. Whoa. The way that we conduct ourselves in daily life tells the real story, folks. Are we saying, I have faith? But does our life show zero works? The way that we conduct ourselves tells the real story, particularly in the home and at the workplace, because that's where people really know you. Listen, you can come in here on a Sunday, and we can greet, and we can have the casual Christian high five, and, you know, we can leave on at, at, at whatever, 145 when we're finished, and, and, then, and then we can go on into our life, and we can, you know, nobody knows us. That's why we think it's so important for you to get involved in a home group, because you need that. I need that. The, the life that we're called to live is not easy folks. Those who preach this self-centered gospel that says, oh, just come to Christ and everything will, your whole life will fall into order. Your whole life will fall into order, but it will be way more difficult, I promise you, 
Why? Because you're going against the grain of the, the, of the, the, the flesh. You're going against the grain of yourself. You're trying to live the direct opposite of what you really want to do. Right? It's hard. Jesus said it would be hard. He said the road is narrow and it's hard, but it leads to life. So you're living a contrary life. And, and those around you at home, they know you. Those around your coworkers, they know you. They know when you're going to blow up. They know how you're going to generally act in situations, right? They know you. So you can't fool them. There's no better place to consider a person's character than in their home and in the workplace. No better place. You spend so much time with these people that they see the real version of you. Not the Sunday morning version of you, but the real version of you. Right? I can have incredible self-control for two hours on Sunday morning, but what about the rest of the week? My, my family will tell you that. They see the real version of Pastor Tim at home. Hey, sometimes I'm not excited and exhortive. Sometimes I'm grumpy and upset and, and just being a flat-out jerk at times. Ask my kids. Well, don't, because that's wrong. I can be irritable. I can be grumpy. But if that's the norm, that is your real self. We're not talking about falling at times. We're talking about character. We're talking about consistency, a habitual lifestyle of living however it is that you live. That's what we're going to look at today. God calls us into a, a, some habitual conduct that will glorify him in our home, and in the workplace. If you really want to get to know somebody, true or false, live with them or work with them. How many of you guys have ever seen that to be true, like the unpleasant reality of the roommate who you thought you were moving in with, but you didn't realize he was Satan or uh, was, uh, you know, Chucky or somebody like that? You thought he was Jack Black, but before you know it, you're like, whoa, this guy's a psycho, right? I'm not your husband. I'm not talking about him. You know, it, it happens. And it's the same thing. But you ever, you ever worked with a friend? They're like, dude, this is going to be so awesome. We're going to spend every day together 40 hours a week. And by the end of the week, you're like, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. You are not who you presented yourself to be. Why? Because the more time we spend with somebody, the, the more we can see the real person. We can fake each other out. But, but Paul wants to get to the crooks of it. What are we supposed to look like? What are we supposed to look like? And uh, so before we get into that, before we get into Christian conduct and at home and in the workplace, we need to sort of paint this historical picture of the culture that Paul is speaking into. And, and it's not that these passages are cultural. Don't misunderstand that at all because they are not. These are absolute truths that translate uh, from, you know, first century to whatever, to the end of the world. It, it won't matter what the time frame is. These truths are not cultural. But we have to understand the cultural context and what Paul is addressing because he doesn't expound on a lot of these things because they sort of understand there's, there's sort of this code, there's this household code already established in, in the community. So in biblical times, in both Jewish and Greek cultures, there was very much a, a, a male authoritarian kind of mindset. We know this. We see this. We see it in the Middle East. That mindset is still there. And, you, you know, you see the, the way that they treat women and children and 
and, and employees and all, you know, or slaves, if you will, uh, will, tr- will sort of parallel slaves and employee-employer relationship because they're, they're similar. We're not dealing, that might be the only cultural thing in the passage this morning, but, but we'll, we'll kind of apply it as it relates to our culture and how the, you know, as an employer or employee. Uh, but, but, but there was this mindset of the man in the house was the king of the house. And Rome particularly established that. And, and, and in fact, they wrote a household code, not for the man of the house, but for everybody else in the house, how they were supposed to treat the man of the house, you know? <laughs> kind of like, uh, uh, you know, he, it reminds me of Fred Flintstone, you know, when, when Barney Rubble said, man, hey, Fred, I'm not going to tell Wilma. And he said, now you listen here, Rubble. I, in my cave, I reign supreme, supreme. And then he goes, I won't tell her, Fred. And he goes, okay, thanks. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's, that's not how it was. Like the guy really did reign supreme in his house. And in fact, the Romans called him the pater familia. He's the father of the family or the owner of the estate. He's the one in charge. What he says goes. And it was because they were establishing a societal uh, authority and organization. They wanted male leadership and they wanted it to be, and, and the Jews did the exact same thing. Although it was instructed by God, it was mishandled and misrepresented. And so there was an authoritarian kind of mindset, right? And, and, and so whatever the, um, whatever the, the man of the house decided uh, what would happen would happen. His wife was a possession. His children were treated as possessions. And, of course, his slaves were treated as possessions. There was, you know, probably real relationship to some degree. But for the most part, listen, he had control. He could divorce his wife. He could stone his kids. He, 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 he could kill his slaves if he wanted to. He had that much authority. And that was written. That was Rome producing a specific culture that they desired. Well, when some of these people began to get saved in this culture, Paul wanted to address how, how do we now, as, as Christians, how do we relate to this household code? I mean, do, you know, society is society. I, I'm not, you know, God's not going to transform society, but he's, you know, it just by legislation or anything, he's going to do it one family at a time. And so he, so he sends Paul to write into this specific issue to these believers in Colossae saying, hey, this is how your household conduct should be. And he addresses three relationships. He, he addresses the husband-wife relationship. He addresses the parent-child relationship. And he addresses the, 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 the master-slave or the employee-employer relationship. And he tells them that although the structure is similar... The conduct is totally different. The conduct is totally different. And in fact, he does something in this text that is totally contrary to the society. He addresses the head of the house, which was never done. There was no code for the master. But Paul says, oh, by the way, you're going to be addressed because Christianity does not operate according to the culture. It operates according to God's heart and his plan and what he wants. And so we're going to look at these three relationships and what God has established and how the, the conduct that he established for 
all, all of us. He starts with the husband-wife relationship. Now, here's what you need to understand is that if I preach this correctly, both the chauvinists and the liberalists are going to be super angry at me. So, if that's the case at the end of this and you want to send me a super mad email, go for it. Send it to mikemondary at calvarychapel.com and that will be fine. He will, he'll make sure I get it, I promise you. I'm kidding. Husbands and wife relationship. Paul begins here with the core relationship at home. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The husband-wife relationship is, contrary to our world today, the primary relationship in the household. Like, we live in a culture that the kids rule the roost. Parents are, for the most part, you see it in society, kids are calling the shots. I want to go now. Let's do this. Let's do that. Go to Disneyland. <laughs> You'll see who's really running the household. I want one of those turkey legs. I want to go on this ride. No, I want to go on that ride. Listen, if they made a reality TV show at Disneyland, that place would, no parent would ever take their kids there. I mean, seriously, like you leave there and you're like, why did I spend thousands of dollars for my kids to be upset the whole time? But here's the thing. It is the primary relationship. Your kids are secondary. They are secondary to your relationship with your spouse. And we need to understand that. There is, I, listen, I've done a, several weddings in the last uh, couple months. So I've done a lot of premarital counseling and things my wife and I have, and, and we've been just, you know, realigning ourselves to what it is that we're called to do as a marriage couple. And, you know, it's so funny because when you meet with uh, uh, premarital people, they don't ever think they're going to have problems. They're like, you know, they're like, oh, we love each other. And I'm like, dude, are you serious? Like, do you know how stupid you sound right now? Because I promise you, there will come a time where you're like, I do not like you. Right? I mean, that's reality because, because we're two people trying to become one. But, but here's the important thing that you need to understand about marriage is that it is an illustration of the gospel and what God has done for you. How so? So here's the thing, is that in marriage, two people, two separate people are called to become one, right? Unionized in a covenant, the marriage covenant, right? Well, in the gospel, two people who are separated become one through a unionization of a covenant called the New Covenant. It's a perfect illustration of God's love for us. And even further, God says, listen, Jesus, he's the groom. His church, they're the bride. And so God has, from day one, set up marriage to parallel, to illustrate the gospel and what our relationship is to be with him. You see why the enemy wants to destroy marriage? Listen, divorce is the parallel to Moses striking the rock twice. 
just like Moses was a strike at once to illustrate that Jesus would die on the cross one time, divorce is striking the rock twice. The enemy wants to do anything he can to desecrate the illustration of marriage paralleling the gospel. He hates the gospel because the gospel sets us free. And so it becomes vitally important that the husband and wife, they, they live out this picture so that the world can see, oh, that's the gospel. That's the practical picture of what the gospel looks like. A husband loving his wife, they becoming one, they're unionized, they're in sync, they are thinking like each other, they complete each other's sentences, and, you know, they walk through it, not perfectly. And so the Lord wants us as husbands and wives to listen up because it's vital that we illustrate this correctly. Here's what you need to understand is that if, the, if you know, you might be here this morning and say, well, there's no way that the enemy would ever be able to break up my marriage. Really? Are you serious? You've just opened the door. Don't you ever take your guard down in your marriage because he is after it, folks. And if he can't break it up, he will make it the most miserable place for you to be. He will make it the most miserable place for you to, to live the rest of your life. He wants to desecrate the illustration of the gospel through marriage. Do you know that statistically that, that he's doing a great job? So it's a little deceiving, but, you know, we say to statistically, you know, 50% of marriages in the church and out of the church are, end up in divorce. It's actually 41% as of today. 41% of all marriages, all first marriages, end in divorce in the church and out of the church. What they're not telling you about that statistic is that the millennials are messing up this. Uh, once again, mess, no, I'm just kidding. But the, the statistics are being messed up because millennials aren't getting married. They're just cohabitating. So they're saying, well, we want to make sure that, you know, they're the, this is the right person and all that. So, uh, um, and I'd be hypocritical because I wasn't a believer, though, but I did that. It's not right. The Bible speaks against it. That we're not to, nowhere in the Bible does it say don't live with each other. But it does say don't ever give the, pres don't ever give the illustration of evil in your life. Like, please, if you're living with uh, someone other than your wife or your spouse, you're probably not doing stuff right. You're probably, you're, you're at least flirting with temptation. Probably not a smart thing to do. Don't ever illustrate evil in your life. Just don't do that. It's not a good thing. But, but millennials are not, they're just living together and they're saying, hey, we'll get married later. And then they're more financially stable and down the road, they've kind of worked things out and they've decided, hey, if I don't like it, I don't have to be here. I can just bail on it. So those statistics aren't feeding into uh, the, the marriage statistics. But here's, here's the reality is that Christians, Christians are also falling into the temptation of giving up on their marriages. It's still happening. It's still happening. And, and it, it's, it, it's primarily due to the fact that, oh, he's not doing what he's supposed to do or she's not doing what she's supposed to do. Right? What do you think Paul's addressing this for? 
Did you not think that God knew, you know, 2,000 years ago in the first century? He's like, man, this is going to be a problem. No, he said it actually in Genesis chapter 3. Like he said, this is going to be a problem because of sin, so we're going to address it. And so he, he starts out, and he says, he starts out with the wives, which is always the best place to start in my opinion. But he says, Paul, or he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. The, the Greek translation of the word submit is essentially uh, borrowed from the military, and it literally means to be brought under rank, to be brought under rank. And, and it's important that, that, you know, culturally people want to make it something more than it is. They want to say, you know, it literally talks about the value of the woman, and it does not talk about the value. It talks about the rank. Those are two different things. God, nowhere in the Bible does God say, women, you're less. No, no, but, but there are places in the Bible where he says you're equal to, right? In the book of Galatians, Paul addressed that. He said there's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female. There's neither Jew nor Greek. He already addressed that. That's, that's like a, in Christ, those things are gone away, right? But, but, but a, in terms of position, in terms of rank, God has a structure, and he said this is the way that the marriage is supposed to work. This is the way it's structured that the wife is to submit to the husband. She's to fall into rank. Not in terms of value, but in terms of position. So one guy illustrated it like this. He said, we know that as a person, a private in, in the army can, can be smarter, more talented, be a better person than a general, but he's still under rank to the general. He hasn't submitted to the generals so much as a person as he is to submit, or he isn't submitted to the general so much as a person as he is to the general as a general. I, I have no idea what that even means, but um, in the same way, the wife doesn't submit to her husband because he deserves it. She submits because he is her husband. What, what he's saying is that there is an authority there. There is, there is something, there is a structure that God has put into place and she, she falls into rank because God put this in place. Not because her, her husband's so smart or awesome. I mean, let's be honest. Usually our wives are way smarter than us. And that is true. I mean, uh, you know, he, he, he's not saying that, that, that she doesn't have equal rights or value. He's just saying her, her position's different. Her position's different. And listen, if she tries to fall out of rank, there's going to be a problem because God ordained it this way. And so what's happening then, as he says here, he, he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. What, what he's saying is that when you're submitting to your husband, you're submitting to the authority of God. That's equally to say that if you're not, you're not submitting to the authority of God. That's what it means. Now, Listen, in the whole women's lib movement in our culture today, people would laugh at this and say that's a joke. How many other things do they laugh at in the Bible too that are true? So because the culture doesn't like what it says, that's no, that's no measurement of truth, whether it's true or not. But it is true. And Paul's saying if you want to have the kind of marriage that you're supposed to have, you have to conduct yourself, ladies, in a way that is in line with the way that God ordained marriage to work. So you need to submit to your husband in terms of 
rank, just to fall in the line. Now, notice that the, severe, the, the sphere of her submission is to her husband, not to every other man in the world. Right? I think it goes without saying, but it, maybe there's some dudes here that need to hear that, hey, my wife doesn't submit to you and neither does anybody else's. Right? And, and, and maybe there's some ladies here that need to understand that you don't submit to every guy that walks into a room. Right? This is specific to the, the husband-wife relationship. Again, how do we deal with the church? Again, the church has a specific structure, and it is male leadership is, is the way that God designed it. But again, that isn't to say that women are less than. It's God's authority, and what I've, what I've noticed is he puts, he puts the ones that need the help the most in front. Like he says, man, Tim, you need, super, you need a lot of help. I'm going to make you a pastor so that you can, you can be right next to me. So I, I, I find the way that that's the way the Lord works. But listen, the, this is a team. The husband is the captain and the wife is the assistant captain. You're a team. You know, and, and the Lord has designed it that way. And, and this isn't to say that your wife has no input on decisions also. You know, the idea that, well, you're the man, you have the final word. Listen, wisdom has the final word. What does the Bible say? I can tell you that I value my wife's opinion. I really do. I love you so much. But I value her input because she sees things differently than I do. And so we discuss something like, hey, what do you think about this? And she'll say something, and I'll be like, uh, I, I don't agree with that, and, 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 then, and then, you know, later, after my pride has been wiped away, I'll come to the same conclusion on my own. <laughs> She's my helper. So, you, guys, you need to listen to your wives. God designed her to be your helper. Like, he put her in your life for a reason. And that's to prod you and to push you and to make you more like Jesus. You, you two together, when you come together, you're better. When you come together, you're better. When you listen to your wife, you submit to you, your wife submits to you and you love her the way you're supposed to, man, you are, you are so much better. So he's telling the wives, listen, this, this, is, this is just simply, this is the way you need to do it. You need to submit to your husband, but... but one last thing, you don't obey him. If he wanted you to obey your husband, he would have used the word obey. But he said submit. It's a decision. The word, the word obey, the only person that you obey is God. God is your authority. The husband is your stand-in. So he, you don't obey his rules. You obey God's rules. And that means that when the husband says you need to do something, uh, you know, you need to do this, and it's outside of Scripture, you, you defer to the authority of God because you obey Him. You don't obey man. But here's the reality. If, if you want to obey the Lord, then you must submit to your husband. And so I think we got the point. We can close in prayer and move. We'll, we'll talk about... No, I'm just kidding. So now it's husband's turns, and Paul goes on to say, husbands, again, not culturally uh, heard of, but he calls men on the carpet to love their wives. Again, you guys know the, the, the word. To, we, we need to be reminded of this often, but we know that the word love 
it's a, it, it, here in the Bible is the same word that, it, that is used for God and how he loves us. It's the agape, the agape love. It's, it's the sacrificial love that exists, listen, out of decision and not out of condition. So this kind of love is a decision. It's not because there's, there's worthiness to be loved or because I, there's a reciprocalness in my love or because there's some condition that makes me love her. No, you're, you're, you're just supposed to love her regardless of what she looks like because that's how God loves you, right? He so loved the world at their worst that while they were yet still sinners, Christ died. Like he sent his son into your life to be crucified for your sin while you were yet still a sinner. He knew that you were at your worst, and he said, I love you anyway. That's how we're called to love. And so that's where the dynamics come in, though, because now our emotions are involved, and we're like, but, but she's not doing this. doesn't matter. Does not matter. Love her. It doesn't matter what she's doing. You are supposed to love her, not superficially, but sacrificially. It's going to cost you something. Maybe your pride. Maybe you have to lay down your pride for a moment and say, woman, don't say that because you'll get in <laughs> big trouble. You say, I love you no matter what. Right? We, we give these vows. I'll, I'm going to love you no matter how you're being. I'm going to love you. And that's what he's calling men to do. He's call, calling them to love their wives beyond, beyond how they even love themselves. Saying, man, you got to love her with the same kind of love that God has. And notice, don't, he also wants us to be nice to her. God's looking out for you, ladies. He says, don't be harsh with her. That literally means don't get bitter with her. Don't you hold a grudge against your wife. You love her. You know, you're, you're supposed, she's supposed to remain sweet as pie in your eyes. And listen, the key is on sweet, not pie, fellas. You got to get back to the context. But he's saying, love her no matter what she's doing. Why? Because God designed you to do that. You're designed to do that. It goes without saying that, yes, you're supposed to lead her. Yes, you're supposed to be the spiritual head of your home. Yes, you're supposed to be the, the priest of your home. You're supposed to be these things. But you, above all, are supposed to love her and lead her and nurture her and wash her with his word. So it's really, really simple what he's asking us to do, isn't it? Submit and love. Submit and love, and it's not, and, and here's the thing is we need to, I want to challenge each of you guys this morning, if you're married, to stop worrying about what your spouse is doing and start worrying about what you're doing. Start worrying about, hey, she's not doing this or he's not doing that. Well, listen, stop worrying about that and start worrying about what you're supposed to be doing. Are you submitting? Are you, are you on the team? Are you trying to lead the team, or are you trying to, or are you letting him you know, step up and take his place that he's supposed to take. Well, he's just not doing it. So what? He'll never do it if you keep doing it. He'll never be able to do it. You need to let him do it. So you let him step into that role. You submit to that God-designed authority. And here's the thing. And husbands, you love your wife. She doesn't submit to me. So what? 
love her, minister to her, keep being Jesus to her. Uh, it's, I know it's easy to say, but that's what you're really called to do. This is Christian conduct for husbands and wives. You want to be like Jesus? You do these things. Parent-child relationship. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, we've all seen this uh, displayed incorrectly in our uh, society, right? And it's a great teaching moment, by the way. You can take your kids out first for an ice cream, and you can say, okay, kids, we're going to learn about what not to do. And you're going to take them and set them in front of other parents and their kids and say, you know, you see that right there? Don't you ever do that. If you ever do that, I will whip you. No, I'm just kidding. But um, actually, a guy, a guy that I learned to parent, you know, a guy that I really admired for his parenting, he told me that. He said, you know, you know what I do? I train my kids all the time. If I see something, I'll say, hey, we'll get in the car. I'll say, hey, guys, did you see that? What did you think about that? Did you like the way that kid was talking to his mom or the way he was talking to his dad? What do you think about that? Well, it gives them an opportunity. Not necessarily to be illustrated upon their actions, but it gives them an illustration outside of their home to see, like, man, I don't want to be like that. I mean, we do that, right? Man, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like this. So that's a great thing to do. But, but what, what Paul is calling children here to do is obey their parents. Not when they feel like it, but in everything. So, kids, can I get your attention if you're in here this morning? Listen, I know that your parents don't seem very smart, right? Because that's the mind of a child, and I know because I've been there. But your parents are way smarter than you think they are. They might not be able to sync their device. They might not be able to turn the channel on the TV because they have no idea how to run the remote but they know way more about life than you do. And that's why God says, listen, your parents have gone through the gamut, and every kid says this. You just don't understand. You, you've, you didn't ever live. Listen, come on. We have. We know. We were kids. And granted, we weren't kids in this culture. We were kids and kids, and the Bible says that Nothing is overtaking you except for what is common to man. You're dealing with the same sorts of things that I was dealing with, even though it might look a little different. So kids, obey your parents. They know that they're not trying to keep you from something that's going to bless you. They're trying to keep you from things that are going to hurt you. They don't want, you know, and the Lord designed it that way. He's given your parents wisdom to teach into your life so that you don't make the same mistakes. God is ministering to you in his design through your parents. And so you need to obey your parents in everything. In everything. Again, just like the husband loving a wife, the wife loving her ch children, obeying their parents is honoring to the Lord. And in fact, one, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says if you do that, you'll get a long life. God gives you a promise with it. If you obey your parents and you... It, in the sight of the Lord and do what's right, it says. That's right. You'll live a long life. He even gives you that. This is what pleases the Lord. It pleases God when you obey. You know that? It, it, you put a smile on God's face when you do what your parents ask you to do. Where's my kids? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You do. You need to obey your parents, man. Paul goes on here and he says, fathers. But the same word there could be translated parents. But it really is an emphasis towards the fathers because he's dealing with this cultural issue where the father literally, the kid is a possession of the father. So he's saying, fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What does that mean? That means don't irritate them. You know you can irritate your kids by unrealistic expectations, by putting onuses on them that don't belong on them. Listen, be careful about what you expect of your kids. We should have expectations for sure, but they need to be realistic. If you, if you don't, you will provoke them into bad behavior. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you, you will provoke your kid, you'll start to jab them, do it, do it, do it, do it. And they certainly, you want to provoke them, just put a whole bunch of rules over them and watch how, how provoked they will become. We have to be careful as parents that we don't discourage our kids by setting the bar to a place where they can't achieve it. You know, we, we, there needs to, and what I mean by that is not that the bar, the bar is the Bible, right? But if there's no grace, then you're beyond what the Bible talks about as the standard. You need to live in a household where grace is prevalent, where you're pouring out grace on your kids. Do you discipline them? You bet. The Lord says if you don't discipline your kids, man, it's like hating them. You need to discipline them. It's the way that you learn, right? God disciplines you because he loves you. So love discipline. So it's not talking about that. He's also not talking about provoking them by not giving them what they, by giving them everything that they want. Here, make sure I don't want to provoke you. Here you go. I don't want to discourage you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about specifically about provoking their actions by a negative mindset, by constantly setting your expectations so high that they could never achieve them. Be gracious. Encourage your children. And listen, you will see them try harder. You'll see them fall in line. You'll see them obey more. Why? Because God designed it that way. Listen, if there was not grace, if there was not grace, if there was only the law, none of us would be here. We'd be all out there doing whatever we wanted to do because there's no way we could achieve it. Don't forget that. Your kids are the same, man. They need grace. And so, you know, but they also need discipline. So you figure that out with the, with the Lord on what that means in your family. He goes on here finally to the employer-employee relationship in verse 22. Bond servants obeying everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Listen, slavery in the Roman culture was prevalent. 50% of the population were slaves. So this was, a, this was sort of the societal fabric of the day. There were tons of slaves. Uh, and, and so, you know, what, what most people say is, I can't believe there's a God that would abdicate, you know, slavery and all this. God doesn't advocate slavery. 
He doesn't, he doesn't stand up for it. He doesn't stand against it. He, doesn't really, he speaks about conduct within it. He says, listen, the culture is what it is, right? In this culture, there was, slavery was prevalent. So here I'm going to speak into that societal issue, and I'm going to tell you what your conduct should look like. That's what he's, that's what he's doing. He's not supporting slavery or, or whatnot. But also you have to look back in the Old Testament and say, like, look, God provided for people through slavery. Jews could sell themselves to their, their brothers and whatnot for a period of time and, and work off their debts and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, it, it, there, there's a couple different nuances there, but, but, but understand that God is in not in any way, shape, or form supporting racism. He's not supporting this sort of, uh, you know, modern-day slavery, you know, act or, you know, kind of how, uh, you know, in the 16th through the 18th centuries where we, where we saw severity in slavery where people were, the, the masters were brutal. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about is if you are a Christian and you have slaves culturally in your area, then you need to treat them like this. And if you're a slave and you're a Christian, you need to act like this. This is a, kind of a cultural thing. But we'll, we'll parallel it to employees and employers. To the employer, he, to the employee, he says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Again, the idea, not obedience beyond God's word, but obedience to the point where, you know, it doesn't violate the Lord. If your boss tells you to go pick up trash in the parking lot, you go do it. Why? Because you're a witness to Christ. He, he parallels your work as being done unto him. Like you, you're, you're, in your obedience to your master, you're being obedient to the Lord. And by the way, you're representing the Lord. You're his ambassador in that place. So he, he tells the bond servants, obey. If you're an employee, obey what your boss is telling you to do. And in fact, uh, you know, don't just do it when he's, not, when, when he's looking, and then when he's not looking, you start slacking off. Be sincere. That means when he's not looking, you're doing your very best. Right? Do you know what happens when you... When your boss isn't looking and you start screwing around and start slacking off, you're stealing. You're stealing. You've contracted with that person your time, and you said, I will sell you my time for this much. You chose that. You chose the amount that you would settle for. They're not, you know, it's not your employer's fault that he's paying you 15 bucks an hour and you don't like that. Get a different job. You know, but, it, but that 15 bucks an hour, you should be working, you know, for 15 bucks an hour, you're being paid to do that. And to do that, to, to, to sort of not do that uh, when your boss isn't looking is sin. It's stealing. So be careful. Well, again, we're, nobody's perfect. But, but the idea is I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm sincere. I'm fearing the Lord. I'm working hard for the Lord in my job. And you know what? Ultimately, what, what Paul says is God's watching and he'll reward you. He's watching and he'll reward you. Don't forget that you're serving the Lord at your job. Man, is that, I, there's going to be a lot of super good workers tomorrow. Man, I'm going to get after it. He goes on here and he says, listen, the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he's done. What, what he's saying is, is God is keeping track. You're not fooling anybody. The Lord knows. You, if you're stealing from your, 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 your employer, ultimately you're stealing from the Lord. And he's watching. And he's keeping track of that. So, so be a good employee. Be a good employee. He's telling a slave, be a good slave. Remember Paul said to Onesimus, go back, be a good slave to, to your master. 
you took off, you, you, you bailed on him, and now, you know, you need to go back. So uh, he goes on to the masters, and he says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master. Not only are, do employers have a part, employees have a part to play, but so do employers. You need to treat people. If you're a manager, man, you need to be fair with people, not take advantage of people. You need to be just with people, not, not try and rip them off. You, you need to bless them and build them up, not tear them down and, and take them for whatever you can. Be careful. Be careful if you're a manager. Listen, you want to be the kind of manager that people go, man, I really like working for you, not the kind of guy that, that they go, man, I can't stand working for you. I need to go somewhere else. So I'm going to close right now because we're super late, but... Uh, but here's the thing, is that all three of these relationships, the husband-wife, the, the parent-child relationship, the employer-employee relationship, all funnel back to the same thing. This is God's authority and his design over the way that our society should work and the way that our conduct should be towards one another. It's a calling for you and I. So here, here, here comes the how-to then. How do I do it? How do I do this? Because my husband's impossible. My kids are brutal. You know, my parents are so overburdened. You know, how do I do this? And see, again, it's the same answer by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit, folks. We, need, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to come and, he, and empower us to, to conduct ourselves in a way that will glorify him. And so we're going to close right now, and we're going to ask the Lord to do that in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to get into your word, Lord. We thank you for uh, just those who stood earlier, for those who are battling mental illness and depression and all of that, Lord. Um, we just pray right now, Father, for the word that we heard, that you would help to apply it to our lives. You're speaking to Christians and you're calling us to a higher standard, maybe than what we're living. And we know, Lord, that we have the power to do it, because you wouldn't call us to do something that we can't. But we want to just come this morning, first and foremost, just pray and ask for forgiveness, Lord, if, we've, if we have not been who we're called to be in our relationships. Lord, if we have stepped outside of your will, as it relates to these relationships, and we want to just confess that to you this morning. Will you forgive us? Lord, will you not only forgive us, Lord, but will you empower us to be what we're called to be in these relationships? Each and every person here, Lord, we can do better. We need your spirit, though. Will you baptize us today? Will you empower us to, to live out these the, the conduct that we've been called to. We receive your power now, Lord. Transform our minds and help us, Lord, to apply what we heard. We just thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.